Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk about industry news in India, Kay and Zales combo stores, and the De Beers Forever Mark rebranding. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from good old LA. I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and JCK Online, calling in from good old NYC. As per usual, we haven't really left these locations, but things are going so great right now that I'm actually in the midst of planning some other trips, which is really... Wonderful. I booked tickets to Chicago. I was invited to a press party of an event in the Hamptons that um, for the end of June, which I may or may not attend. I'm, it's looking hopeful. So all that is just a wonderful sign that things really are. This promised return to normalcy summer is really panning out seemingly. Is that your sense of things? How's New York feeling? Yeah, New York feels okay. I mean, I went to an indoor lunch it was my father's birthday. It was weird, you know? I hadn't done it so long. Like, I felt like naughty, like I was doing something wrong. Go- going to lunch with my dad is like something I did like a million times. It just felt like so like forbidden and weird. Yeah. I mean, there's been so many articles. I lost track of every time I see a headline that talks about all the kind of psychological help we all need to cope with entry. And it's kind of hilarious to me. And I do get it. Like the first time I went to a gathering of more than five people, it was outside, but it was more just the socializing that was awkward. These are people I hadn't seen in over a year. And to have like 10 of them at once, it just felt like too much to catch up on, too much to talk about. Everything felt like you want to ask about people's families, but you don't want to get too heavy right away. There's just all that awkwardness. We're still trying to figure out how to transcend. But I think, you know, as more and more of us do get out in the world. We're social creatures, most of us. And I think it'll all just feel like riding a bike. I'm pretty excited. I've mentioned before I booked my tickets to Vegas. I'm all in. Like, I really believe in the vaccine. I'm not too worried about masks. I feel extremely confident that we're in a good spot. And I think the numbers really, you know, I was just checking out the COVID numbers here in the U.S. The May 31st number was 5,602 new cases, which is, you know, we haven't seen that since the very early days of the pandemic. You know, it feels like such a, and I know you and I have talked about this and you've written about it, but it's in stark contrast to what our colleagues and friends and people we know in India are dealing with. Clearly, the situation in India is much different and they still have huge new cases. As of June 1st, 132,788 new cases a day. Now, mind you, that's down from a peak on May 8th of 403,405. So they went from 403,000 three weeks ago down to 130 on June 1st. So the graph is kind of wild because they had such a sharp rise starting in early April and then peaking in early May, and now they're down. So there there is some good news in that sense. I'd actually reached out to somebody I respect and know and makes wonderful jewelry, um, Tarang Aurora, who is part of the family that owns Amrapali, a heritage jeweler based in Jaipur. And he's been posting, you know, on Instagram and posted something that caught my eye in that he's involved in an initiative called Find a Bed. It's a movement to basically help 
place people in hospitals because obviously their hospitals have been overflowing and so many of those cases can be cured with proper quarantine, but there's just no repository for people to see where their bed's available. So this initiative, findabed.in, is the apparently first information repository on beds in India. And it's a great effort. And when he responded to me last night and he said, so the situation is bad and it was extremely bad. So I guess we're getting better. It's not good, but it's better. And I think just from our experience here in the U.S. and back in January when those terrible surges happened, we know that any movement in the right direction is positive. Right. People can't get too cocky about it because then you end up back where you were. I think I think this also shows the need for distributing the vaccine worldwide, which is going to be a huge challenge because with people flying back and forth in different countries and business people, I mean, you're, you're going to want as many availability to the vaccine as possible or otherwise you're aside from the humanitarian concerns, you you run the risk of something starting to blow up here again because of the variants. You know, we have to kind of get this whole thing locked down as quickly as possible. I mean, I can't imagine the authorities are not deeply concerned when they see things like this. Uh, you, you mentioned sort of that cockiness, and it reminds me back in December, late December, I was doing a piece on a billionaire in India who is just sort of a budding watch collector, and it was for a piece in The Times. And I Zoomed with him He's based in Bangalore. He was so relaxed and he was saying, COVID, yeah, it's almost, you know, it's kind of not a thing anymore. We're all going to the bars. The bars in Bangalore are filled with people. Nobody's wearing masks. And I think that's sort of what the issue in India really was, is that there was this complacency because they had really dodged that COVID 1.0 bullet. They had managed to kind of escape without any devastating case counts. I, I think there's a lot of debate in public health circles as to why and trying to understand exactly why this second surge was so brutal. But yeah, it, I can't help but think about his remarks in December and then in light of what we saw in late April. It is a humbling experience. But, you know, for us, I feel a sense of security this summer as I talk about it now. And I think we just owe it to ourselves to give ourselves that space to breathe and enjoy and relax and not worry about it. And maybe come fall when people are gathering indoors more often, we can revisit, rein in, whatever it is we need to do based on the numbers. I am really ready to run free, maskless, indoors, go crazy. Like, I'm ready for it. I think we all are. I would just say from an industry perspective, obviously, India is hugely important in the industry. And apparently the stock levels were very high before all this happened. The stock levels of jewelry or diamonds particularly? Of diamonds in particular. And one person told me they were in early March 2021, they were higher than they were in early March 2020, which does not make any sense whatsoever. I guess the hope... I mean, obviously there's a humanitarian tragedy here, but perhaps the pipeline will be a little less full and clogged and we won't have to deal with a a massive amount of goods because that uh, almost never ends well. Because I think people were so excited with the end of COVID that there was also a kind of frenzy as far as buying rough, producing diamonds and ran the risk of a huge uh, overflow. So I guess we'll see. I mean, right now it's you just hope for the best for everybody over there. What it makes me wonder, just from a purely business perspective, if India, which is such a huge jewelry buying culture and a huge jewelry market, whether they're seeing the same things we saw over 2020, which is that jewelry sort of, I think conventional wisdom would would dictate that the height of a pandemic is not a time where you see jewelry selling or some jewelers having their best sales years ever. And that's, in fact, what we saw in 2020 here in the States. I'm curious if Indians are buying jewelry for the same reasons we did. 
needed. You know, they're stuck at home. They want to send a gift of love to somebody that they care about. They want to invest in something that is meaningful. I don't know. I don't think we'll probably know that for a little while yet. Have you heard much about what their domestic market is? I think at least part of the demand in India is ceremonial for like weddings and stuff like that. If you're not having ceremonies, you're not going to necessarily buy that stuff. It goes without saying we, I am personally obsessed with India and I think on a daily basis about traveling there again and when I might be able to take my son. So I think a lot about the people I know there, the people I care about, the companies that we all work with and when we'll see them again and just how they're faring. Beautiful country, beautiful culture and just praying that the vaccine is roll out and, and the herd immunity that they can reach something to turn things around. But like I said that at the beginning, their numbers are looking surely promising, still devastating, but not headed in the wrong direction anymore. So every finger and toe I have is crossed for India's continued, you know, retreat from, from this pandemic. I, I really, I pray. Um, we have one other bit of interesting Indian news that you ran a story on Mahul Choksi, the former Samuels owner who was arrested. And the teaser to me just sounds so, sounds like a movie plot. The former chairman of Gitanjali Gems and Samuels Jewelers was reported missing on May 23rd and was later apprehended trying to gain entrance into the island of Dominica. I mean, that just sounds so like intense. Can you tell us about that? I mean, a little of the background, Choksi, billionaire, he and his nephew, Nirav Modi, were two of the biggest people in the Indian industry. And they were caught allegedly submitting fraudulent letters of letters of undertaking to get bank loans, right? So they were getting like these huge, they're getting like these huge, like billion dollar bank loans. And as someone in the diamond industry said to me, it's like getting a, a $2 billion loan, you know, chances are you're not going to pay it back, right? Because like, if you don't have the billions already, I mean, it's one thing, okay, I need a hundred million to scale up or whatever, $2 billion, either have it or you don't. So they're borrowing these huge amount of money from these banks. And a lot of the banks were government owned. So they're public sector banks. So like Indian taxpayers go to finance these banks. It's a huge scandal in India. And right afterwards, uh, Nirav Modi went to London. He was eventually arrested. And Choksi went to Antigua give up his Indian citizenship. And here's like the most movie-like part of the whole thing. According to the government, he was with a quote-unquote girlfriend. This is an article that just appeared today. Mahul Choksi was indeed with a woman when he landed in Dominica, but she was not his girlfriend. Sources close to the fugitive businessman told India Today TV, adding that she was part of a team involved in his, quote, abduction, torture, and arrest. These sources say that the woman was staying with him in Antigua, and she started meeting Choksi during the morning, and they, they started having walks. She befriended him. And on May 23rd, she called him to an apartment to meet her. When he reached there, a group of people allegedly abducted him and took him to Dominica, where he was arrested, the sources claimed. So the reason why this is important is because there was all sorts of legal cases with him trying to extradite him from Antigua. But as long as he stayed on Antigua, he was relatively in good shape. Now, the fact that he tried to escape or allegedly tried to escape kind of cancels that out, right? Because now all of a sudden, he doesn't have that legal protection. So now he's been back to Antigua and there's going to be more legal wrangling. So I guess this is the issue. If he deliberately left home or 
if this mysterious uh, woman kidnapped him or allegedly kidnapped him or something like that. God, these stories of him and his and Modi, they're just, they're the stuff of heist films and heist gone wrong. It, it's kind of hilarious because it is so dramatic and melodramatic. Yeah. It's amazing. The jewelry industry really always continues to put out stories that are stranger than fiction. No need to fictionalize any of this because it's all just there in the headlines. There's also uh, Jatin Mehta, who was the former chairman of uh, Winston Diamonds. He's also considered a fugitive economic offender. His family is still very involved in the industry. He's kind of the one that they have not been able to really locate, and nobody's even really sure where he is at this point. They got Modi, they may have gotten Choksi, and we'll see what happens going forward, but clearly uh, there's a big issue with, with loans and the way they're calculated over there. So it's terrible for the industry. We have this whole thing about like trying to get people to finance the industry, and then here you have two of the biggest names allegedly trying to cheat the banks. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing to read these things, but yeah, ultimately not good news. Not good news for their their companies, not good news for... Yeah, companies are gone. Yeah, the company's gone. Speaking of companies, I'm going to shift gears here and bring it back to the States. And you just wrote a story that really did kind of perplex me. I'd, I'd love your thoughts on it. It's about the odd couple, this combination K Zales store concept that Signet is trying out. I guess um, it sounds like the first one opened in Lafayette, Louisiana. Tell us about it and then tell us what you think about it. You you think about it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's called K plus Zales. But I guess the idea was, okay, we have malls. There's not enough traffic or consumer demand to support both a K and a Zales. So let's just mash them together, see what happens. And, you know, it is a little odd because how do you pronounce it? Like, hey, I'm going to the K plus Zales. You wouldn't say like, every kiss begins with K plus Zales. It's very awkward, right? I have to say the new leadership at Signet has done a pretty good job at kind of differentiating the two nameplates, right? The two different stores, because for a while they were very similar and they were always competitors. And apparently even after Signet bought Zale, there was apparently a lot of competition between those two different brands, even when they were part of the same company. So, you know, we'll have to see. I do have somebody sent me a, you know, we have a vast network of JCK spies and uh, I got somebody who will remain nameless to uh, go into this store. And this is what he told me. He went into the K plus sales. Nice and bright inside. Much more pleasant than a mall store or even a Jared's. Layout was straight back from the door. Zale cases on the right, K's on the left. I asked, was there any difference? He says, no difference uh, stood out. In fact, I had to ask which side was which. There's a couple cases in the middle, which were for walking around and standing alongside the salesperson rather than the salesperson standing behind the counter. Bottom line, not a boring traditional looking store. Very nice and pleasant and inviting. But it's a, you know what? It's a interesting concept. You know, I have no idea if it's going to work, but I think it's important to experiment. It's trying to be coherent. Do shoppers necessarily know the difference between those two stores? You know, even though they are more differentiated, do the kind of shoppers kind of respond to that? I have no idea. So what's your take? Really, I agree with you. I, it is odd because I didn't even realize that Zales was more of the fashion source and, you know, the entity for more fashionable, kind of probably presumably younger, edgier jewelry. That K was more the sentimental, you know. So 
yes, that sound it sounds like just the way they're framing it, there is a natural distinguishing qualities that clearly make that difference. I do wonder, based on your spy commentary, whether it actually is executed well enough for there to be a distinction. I also think, to your point, yes, it's worth experimenting. You really don't know until you try. I found it interesting in your piece that you talked about that there is a precedent for that within Signet, that Jared and James Allen mashups exist. Do you know much about how those are doing or how many of them there are? There's four and they're going to do a whole bunch more. You know, I, I watched this whole investor presentation with Signet and one of the elements they were not sure of what to do with, I think they had a, they had a vision for K and they had a vision for Zales and they certainly have a vision for Pearson Bagoda, but they didn't really have a vision for Jared. So I guess the, the thought is to kind of move it upscale, which is, it kind of was in the beginning and then it was a superstore and then, you know, it kind of became this jokey kind of dude uh, hangout place. Yeah, I don't know how they're doing. I guess I guess the idea is, you know, you have two names in one. You have like, people know Jared, people know James Allison. You kind of like, hey, you know, this is two in one. I have to say, I would not be shocked if the name Jared eventually becomes James Allen, just because I think, if especially you're going to go upscale, I think James Allen is a little bit better of a name. They're continuing to open them, so I guess there's something there, and they're not doing that many James Allen uh, store concepts on their own, which is, you know, like Brilliant Earth and Blue Nala doing all that. So we'll uh, we'll have to see. And then they have Rockbox. There's there's a lot of names now under the Signet umbrella. There, there are, and I really do applaud them for trying all these things. I mean, they're not just sitting around waiting for the future to show up and kind of react to it. They're really, it sounds like executing on a lot of different, interesting, innovative strategies, some of which may not work, but I applaud the effort because I think, as I said, you know, if we don't try, we don't, we don't learn. And if we don't fail, we don't learn. So I don't know if I'll be here in LA or if I'll, I'll have the opportunity to actually visit that would cement the experience in my, my understanding of how it works. We'll see. Because the name is a little awkward. I think that might make the whole thing a little awkward. I, I don't know. But again, when you think of it from their standpoint, that it was either like lose one or the other, like, okay, well, let's just try to keep both. I think about malls and I think about all the different ways they're suffering now and may may continue to suffer. And so this is an effort to see if we can stem that flow of customers away from, from them by, you know, shoring up what they have. The whole idea of a mall is that it's where you get everything, right? You get your books and clothes and it's kind of all in one. And now you don't need that, right? You have Amazon, you have the internet. They don't have the same purpose that they used to be, which is why they're obviously becoming more experiential and putting in like carousels and doctor's offices and gyms and a lot more restaurants. Even the social aspect. When I was younger, people used to hang out at the mall and now you don't necessarily need to do that. You hang out on Facebook. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show. Well, I have one more mashup I want to talk to you about or ask you about, which is another story you've written. You've been on a tear, Rob. I mean, you're always on a tear, but all these stories. We just learned, well, not just, this has been a few weeks in the making now, at least publicly, but Forevermark will now be called The Beers Forevermark. So we've got this rebranding. I feel like they've rebranded over the years. So I'm a little lost as to what what was the impetus for this particular rebranding. What did you find out when you were reporting this story? 
So for a long time, the De Beers retail chain was run with LVMH. That joint venture had rights to use the De Beers name commercially. So De Beers would like, for example, call their grading lab IIGDR, which is not particularly like a great name. So they didn't have the rights to their own name to use it commercially. So then they, they bought out LVMH and now they have the rights. And I guess the thought is that we just want to promote the De Beers name and use all these other things as sub-brand. And I mean, the thing is, apparently when De Beers was meeting with LVMH and they were putting this whole thing together, uh, basically they asked them like, yes, your name has high brand awareness because they used to put it in the commercials and it's an old name and, and people knew it, but they were like, how many diamonds have you sold under this name? And how that they, they haven't, it's, uh, I mean, in the trade, it's, it's still kind of considered this godlike entity, right? But as far as like on a consumer level, you know, a lot of people have negative associations, uh, whether it's its past as a monopoly or, you know, they are associated uh, fairly or not with uh, blood diamonds. So all the associations people have with this name are not necessarily positive. I mean, I think one thing that they could do, which they don't necessarily want to do, is the idea, okay, here you're getting diamonds straight from the mine, they're cheaper. That, that's not the kind of game they're playing. They're, they're saying, you know, they want to be kind of a luxury, like a Tiffany type of Cartier name. Uh, the Forevermark is always, first of all, it's like, the, it's like this long name and the selling proposition, the Forevermark, it's just like this long name. It, it's a little clunky and it's all based around this mark on the table of the diamond, which, you know, you can't even see. So basically like they're selling something that you can't even see. So I think they would have been much better to do like forever jewelry or forever stores, uh, something, uh, something along those lines that kind of takes the forever name and uses it in a different way than just kind of associating it with this mark because everybody always compares it to Intel inside. And like, how many people buy computers based on Intel inside? This is a question of quality marks. I mean, those go back a long way, right? The good housekeeping approval. I mean, there's a long history of, it may be that those are no longer relevant. Or, or the people don't understand this one or, or what it means, you know? Like, I think it's good that they're doing jewelry and we'll see, you know, does De Beers forever mark, will it make a difference? I mean, is the De Beers name so iconic? Uh, with consumers that it will make a difference. And I think one of the things they're trying to do is to talk about some of the good things that they've done in Botswana and to put a kind of halo around the around the brand. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to divorce our understanding of De Beers as people who've spent, you know, decades writing about this, as you called it, this kind of godlike entity, this all-powerful, all-knowing company. Of course, that name is resonant for us in this business. I think it's kind of funny when I see a movie and often there is that bad guy kind of diamond cartel and they usually change the name to some Dutch sounding version of yours. So there is that experience in popular culture where, you know, there is a reference to a Dutch sounding global diamond, you know, behemoth. There is that in, in the zeitgeist or somewhere, but who knows? I, I have a lot of questions about what Gen Z and, and even the next generation coming up after Gen Z knows and what they're aware of and what is current for them. There's so much to understand about what the generations know of each other. Right. And I think... You know, the idea of having something that's lasting and an investment is not, you know, I don't know if the younger generations are necessarily attuned to that. I mean, they might be. Well, you know, when I did that focus group with all the jewelry commercials, what was, what was really interesting to me is, first of all, like, no one had seen the commercials. 
everything was off of Instagram. That's all it like, oh yeah, I like Instagram. I buy, I see jewelry on Instagram. I follow the influencers on Instagram. So it was a very, you know, different mindset to what we're used to, you know? And it's like, well, is it even worth it to show a bunch of 20 year olds commercials if they're not going to see him. You know, I keep thinking about what my two year old son says when he sees um, an ad pop up on YouTube, which is, of course, where he and I imagine every other person in his coming up generation obsessed with is YouTube. And he says, Mom, Marshall, skip. Skip, yeah. Commercial be skip. Skip. And he calls it a Marshall and he asks for it to be skipped at two. So I think, yeah, commercials. In general, um, we'll have to figure out where they live in the future and how they're used to speak to consumers because it does seem like we are raising a generation of people who don't want to be actively sold to. So we'll have to make it more subtle, which, you know, why not? I applaud that. All right. Well, I think we've chatted our, our heads off yet again. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rob. Always a pleasure. And we'll see you in another couple weeks. Yeah. Take care, everyone. Stay healthy. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Riley McCaskill. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.